Hello and welcome to this week's episode of The Jewish Views with me, Phil Dave, Tony Honigberg, Clive Roslin and Kate Fulton. Coming up on this episode, we're going to be focusing our attentions on women's experience of the Holocaust with our very special studio guest, Agnes Grunwald-Spear. And we're also going to be finding out about the death of Oscar Groening. But before that, the roundup of The Jewish News from our very own Vivian Krieger. And we begin with the death of Oscar Groening, the man known as the bookkeeper of Auschwitz, at the age of 96. Although he was convicted in 2015 of being an accessory to the murders of 300,000 Jews, he didn't serve a single day of his four-year sentence due to ill health. Holocaust survivor Susan Pollock, who was sent to Auschwitz along with her family in 1944, told Jewish News that his death didn't alter the fact of his moral responsibility. A rabbi walked out of a Zionist Federation dinner after objecting to remarks made by the guest speaker, Israeli politician Gideon Saar, which he said went unchallenged. Rabbi Leah Mulstein of Northwood and Pinner Liberal Synagogue, who says she's a deeply committed Zionist, objected when Mr Tsar claimed Israel wasn't deporting asylum seekers and refugees. She shouted out, yes you are, before leaving. Rabbi Mulstein has since written to the Zionist Federation to complain that Mr. Saar was ignoring the strength of feeling about the subject. Hundreds of Polish people gathered in Warsaw to express solidarity with those Jews who perished in the Holocaust or who were expelled from Poland during the communist era. Speakers at the demonstration also denounced the current policies of their country's government, which have led to a dispute with Israel and sparked a wave of anti-Semitic rhetoric. A violin which was once owned by the Jewish physicist Albert Einstein was sold for almost £370,000 at an auction in New York, more than three times its estimated price. The instrument was apparently given to Einstein in 1933 by Oskar Steger, who was a member of Pennsylvania's Harrisburg Symphony Orchestra and inscribed with the words, made for the world's greatest scientist. And in sport, Arsenal are investigating after one of the club's fans was caught on film singing an anti-Semitic song. The man was on his way to the Europa League match against AC Milan when he sang Gas Them All, which apparently referred to Spurs supporters. An Arsenal spokesman told Jewish News the incident was extremely disappointing and unacceptable, but also said it would be difficult to identify who the supporter was. And that's your News and Sports Roundup for this week. Thank you, Vivian. And now it's time to uh, talk about the Jewish news. And Richard is with us, the editor. Hello. And your main story. Yes, headline, Jewish Museum trolled by Polish nationalists. The Jewish Museum in Camden, much loved in the community. And this story that's been running for a couple of weeks now, Poland's passed a law, controversial law, saying that use of the phrase Polish death camp or any sort of inference whatsoever that puts Poland and Nazi crimes together is punishable by law. So an extraordinary thing seems to have happened in the last couple of days. The Jewish Museum in London has been bombarded by what they're saying is 3,000 emails a day from Polish nationalists who are opposed to 
the museum who had an exhibition in Poland only recently, which didn't in any way suggest that there was any sort of comparison between Poland and the crimes of the Nazis. And even more worrying and pernicious, there are only Jewish employees who seem to be targeted. So it's a concerted email campaign, a trolling campaign. Trolls aren't, they they do live under bridges and, and scare little children, but it's also a concerted email campaign, trolling or pestering or following people on, mm. on online. Which actually seems quite scary to actually stop and think that this is so specific, so targeted and really concentrated along those lines that someone out there, some group out there, whoever they are, are actually going out of their way to intimidate. When I went to Warsaw, the most of the people I met, and when I went on to the death camps, most of the people I met, most of the Poles I met were... Very, very, very upset about the fact that it happened on Polish ground. But they were always keen to say, of course, it had nothing to do with us. It's it's a very difficult subject. I mean, obviously, Poland, it was the graveyard of, of the mm. Second World War, a continent that was ripped asunder. But it, the heartland of, of the destruction, particularly for the, of the Jewish community of Europe, was it uh, three million Jews out of the six were, were mm. of Polish heritage? So it was a graveyard of Jewish culture and Jewish history of the Second World War. And of course, subsequently, the 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 pogroms and, and the, the horrors of, of behind the Iron Curtain. So the two of them do coalesce in a way. But you also have to understand there was a tragedy for the Polish people here. And to have these death camps on their on their patch, on their territory, is a difficult thing and a legacy of the war that, that the children have, have grown up with. But yeah, it's been, it's been very we- difficult, I think, to balance what happened during those years and how the Polish government today is responding to it. When you say these these trolls, these trolling, what what exactly? Who's saying what to whom? I mean, people. What do they say? What's in these emails? The problem is that the Jewish Museum has approached the police and said, "Is there anything you can do about this?" Because I mean, we all get email, we all get spam. I mean, imagine having to deal with three thousand of these per day, and it's not just a cut and paste letter writing campaign. This is concerted. It's coordinated. It's actually well thought out. It's rational in many ways, and it's hundreds, if not thousands, of individual people. Clearly, there's been a concerted campaign by a political movement in Poland to target the Jewish community through its Jewish museum. So what Abigail Morris, the chief executive, is saying, she's told the police they're not very interested because all it is is constructive in most part criticism through email. It's not anti-Semitic abuse. It's just inundation. It's it's kind of overwhelming them Mm. through their uh, email Mm. system. Well, one thing I do think we should point out is it's not all bad news. As we heard just now in the news with Viv, that there was, of course, this demonstration that it happened in Warsaw recently that promoted unity with the Jewish community who did perish during the Shoah. So hopefully it's not all bad and we shouldn't really let our view on Poland be dampened too much. We're not saying that all Poles are anti-Semitic, but there is certainly a group of right-wing Poles that appear to be anti-Semitic and targeting But there's right-wing in all nations, isn't there? Of course there is. But anyway, let's have a look at one of the other stories making the paper this week. ZF Dinner didn't exactly go to plan now, did it, Richard? So there I was on Sunday night at the ZF Dinner having an absolutely spectacular time. Beautiful kosher food, lovely speeches. A lot happened, shall we say, at the dinner. Not all of it, I think, for the organisers good, but I mean, it was a successful evening. On the one hand, you had an absolutely powerful, moving moment when the father of the Druze soldier who was stabbed in a terror attack on Temple 
Temple Mount last July, literally broke down in tears as he was talking about his son and the Jewish community's love of Israel and their defense of the country. So that, that was an extraordinary moment. There was also a very moving moment when Eric Moomin, the late chairman of the ZDF, who passed away in December, much loved friend of the Jewish News. There was an announcement that there's going to be a plaque in his memory on Mount Herzl. So that was wonderful. Not so great. Gideon Zaha, who's a MK, who many seem to think might be the next prime minister, was heckled by a reform rabbi when he was talking about Israel's handling of the refugee crisis. So uh, somebody uh, shouted out and then stormed out. That made headlines. And also Katie Hopkins, who's a, a right of centre public figure, who has associated herself with some unsavoury figures. She was just a guest there. She just came along as a supporter of, of the Jewish community in Israel. And some people didn't take very well to the fact that she was there and uh, her associations. So, yeah, it was a, a, a busy old evening, but a, a successful one nonetheless. And all round, I was going to say, an all round a roaring mm. success, I'm sure. Yeah. It sounds like it. What about ex-Nazi guard who helped kill 300,000 Jews dies before jail? Oscar Groening, Oscar yeah. Groening, yes. Escapes his final justice through natural causes. Now, it was good that there was belated justice. I don't really care about justice for a wretched 90-year-old man with a, a vile history. I, I'm more interested in seeing a public spectacle and people mm. talking about it, seeing it on the news, understanding what happened, remembering what took place on European soil 70 years ago through these actions. And I mean, this guy was mundane. He was a foot soldier, rank and file. He was an accountant. Mm. So he didn't have blood on his hands. And if you can give him credit, if you can ever give a former Nazi credit, he, he, he took on board what had happened. I mean, he was an unrepentant anti-Semite to the last. There was interviews with him going back only 10 years ago. Mm. Where he was excusing why they had to kill Jewish children as well as Jewish adults. But he did take on board what had happened. And unfortunately, he's evaded his final justice, which is the, the prison sentence that's long been coming to him. Why did it take so long? There's a new law that was introduced about 10, 15 years ago, whereby you can prosecute a Nazi, not for a specific death but for just being part of the machinery. Mm. And it was very, the first one was rolled out for John Demjanjuk, yes. I think, and he passed away. There was another Nazi, I can't remember, who was also rolled out for. But this is such belated justice. Why wasn't this rolled out in the 50s and 60s? Why did it take to the 21st century? Yeah. And right. one, could, one could say that, you know, having gone through all that trial and everything else, his justice has been seen to be done, even if he didn't get to serve a prison sentence. And what good would a prison sentence have done to anybody? No, but, I mean, the, the truth is, yeah. he got away with most of his life without being convicted for his crime. So, frankly, as, as you identify already, Rich, the, the, the truth is that he's, he's lived his life and therefore it's almost no point. But it is the meaning behind it. It is almost the symbolic gesture as yeah. if to say, eventually, better late than never, we recognise that there was something hideous that happened. And we, we saw did. it all un unfold, didn't we, in the trial? Yeah. There's, so, there's no time limit on no. justice. No. Could have happened seven days or 70 years ago and justice needs to be served. And I said, it, it just, it's a good memory it's a good reason, I think, for us to, to remember and for, mm. for the next generation to learn through what happened and, you know, and his ultimate death. OK, well, there we go. Unfortunately, that's where we're going to have to leave it for a look at the paper for this week. But thank you very much indeed, Richard. Don't forget that you can pick up your copy of The Jewish News every Thursday across London, or you can always read the e-version online at jewishnews.co.uk. Well, as you have been hearing that not only this week have we learned of the death of Oscar Groening, 
We are also going to be looking in more detail at a new book by Agnes Grunwald Spear, who actually joins us in the studio now. The book is called Women's Experiences in the Holocaust. Agnes, I suppose that first of all, welcome to the Jewish Views. But can we start off with why you were particularly interested in looking at women of the Shoah? It's something I thought about doing for some time. And um, I was particularly influenced by my mother's experience of having me in Hungary during the Holocaust and ending up in the Budapest ghetto with me as a very small baby that she had to breastfeed to keep alive and also struggle to keep warm and so on. I think women's experiences are different for many obvious reasons, really. But I don't think they've been given as much attention as it warrants. But do you think that it boils down to men and women getting that exposure for being a part of something so heinous? One would assume that surely a Shoah survivor is a Shoah survivor and it almost doesn't matter if they're, if they're male or female. Well, they just had different experiences. The women who tended in pre-war Europe to be in the home and looking after the family found that they had to deal with all sorts of situations that they weren't prepared for. Either the men were taken away or else the men were hiding in the house because they were frightened of going out on the street in case they got arrested. But, but the women weren't only looking out in the houses and keeping people at bay, were they? Because they were out doing lots of underground things as well. So they were able to go out into the street and get the food, and then they could also endeavour to get false documents and other things whilst they were innocently out with their shopping baskets, whereas a man wandering down the street was susceptible to being arrested or taken away. And so that was one aspect, and a lot of the women were ill-prepared for having to deal with that in my book. I describe the uh, hoops that the women had to go through to get the documents, to get things organised. Can you explain some of those hoops? After Kristallnacht, a lot of the men were taken away to Dachau and Sachsenhausen and so on. And the Nazis said that if they got papers to leave their country, then they would release the men. So the women had to go from various different offices it was an incredibly complicated system that they had to go through. And I think most women would not have been prepared in, to deal with that, that sort of thing. I was fascinated by a chapter in your book, which you label the Kishariot, which I'm hoping you'll, you'll explain who they were. But I understand that these were a group of younger women who were sent out on all sorts of errands. Can you tell us a bit more about them? The only way you can translate that word is really underground couriers, but that doesn't really give you the sense of what they did. They were mostly young girls of about 17 who went from ghetto to ghetto and other hiding places with false documents, with money, with sometimes with potatoes. They had special bags with false bottoms and so on. Not only did they help people, in the ghettos and in hiding, but they also gave them hope and they brought news because obviously Jews weren't allowed to listen to the radio. There weren't the newspapers in the same way. And so people were very isolated. So these girls weren't always Jewish then? Oh, they were, yes, they were Jewish. Ah. Yes, yes, they were Jewish. They were volunteers. Gosh. Part of, of the resistance. I was going to say some of them volunteered to be the part of the resistance. They were volunteered, they? yes. 
Yes. Yeah. And many of them died. Extraordinary young women. You think about our mollycoddled youth of today, 17-year-olds, you know, banging on about wanting a new car and learning to drive and, and all of that. And these, these girls were giving up their life because they were girls. Yes. But it was the same with the partisans. I mean, again, they were very young. I think the comparison is with you know, the IDF nowadays. People in the rest of the world mm. don't understand that they're straight out of school. I've got three sons. When my sons were teenagers, I looked at them and I thought they would never cope. They've been far too moddly coddled, taken everywhere by cars. Well, stuff. I think what we'll do, Agnes, is we're going to come back to this in just a moment because obviously there is quite a, a, a theme developing, shall we say, for this week's news in the form that obviously this week is the week we learn that convicted Auschwitz guard Oskar Groning has died at the age of 96. We're going to get your reaction to that in just a moment's time. But what we are going to do is we're going to bring in at this stage a Martin Winstone from the Holocaust Education Trust who joins us on the line now. Martin, welcome to The Jewish Views. Perhaps you could maybe just start off by saying as far as Oscar Groning is concerned, I'm sure that a lot of people have heard of him in recent weeks because he has been featured quite prominently in the news. But who was he and how was he instrumental in the whole event that was the Shoah? Oscar Groning, I think, in, in some ways is a quite a typical figure in terms of understanding how the Shoah was possible because he was very much an ordinary man. He was somebody who trained as a bank clerk before the war found himself in the SS. He wanted a sort of glamorous posting somewhere overseas and found himself being sent to Auschwitz. He served in Auschwitz from 1942 to 1944. And his role there was not as directly as a murderer. He was, there's this phrase that's been used to describe him, the bookkeeper of Auschwitz. Essentially, he was an accountant. And his job included sorting and counting the money in a wide variety of different currencies that was brought to Auschwitz by the victims, guarding their possessions before they were sorted. So he was a part of this administrative machine. And I think that's really important for us in trying to understand the, the, the reality of the Holocaust, that it was something that was made possible not just by people with guns or by SS men in gas chambers. It was also part of this huge administrative machinery. There's a fantastic German word, Schreibtischtäter, which means desk perpetrator, someone who doesn't directly kill anyone, but who sits behind a desk and is part of that process of, of mass murder. So Gröning was very much by serving at Auschwitz, facilitating this process of murder here. And I think his case is an important one in, in a couple of respects. Firstly, because it shows that simply to have been part of the machinery of Auschwitz-Birkenau made you an accomplice to murder. That's a major breakthrough which has actually happened in German law over the last several years. But I think secondly, obviously from the point of view of justice, this case shows, although of course he did not end up serving time in prison because of his, his various appeals and the fact that he's now died, it does show that there is the potential for people to be brought to justice for these horrific crimes, no matter how long after the event that, that justice is delivered. Why did it take so long, though? That's a, that's a fascinating question. I think the short answer is, is really two points. One is about knowledge of the Holocaust, until really about the 1980s or maybe even the 1990s, relatively little research had been done on the Holocaust. And I think there was a sense that people were all too willing to believe that if somebody said, I wasn't directly involved, I didn't have a choice, people accepted those statements, which 
research has now shown out not to be true. And I think secondly, partly influenced by that, is a significant change in the interpretation of the law in Germany. Because most of the perpetrators, of the German perpetrators certainly, ended up living in West Germany after the law openly as law-abiding citizens, or so it seemed. And most of them were not investigated, or if they were, they were never prosecuted. Because in German law, historically, it was very difficult to prove the crime of murder. It had to be not simply the act of killing, but also the law said that the person had to have a base motive, which might, for example, be anti-Semitism. They all said, or most of them said, I was only doing this because I was scared. I was only part of this. I didn't really want to be. I didn't have a choice. And courts tended to believe that. And I think as time has gone on, there, there, there's been a very significant change in how the law has been understood and interpreted so that it is now possible to bring cases against people who served in a death camp simply by serving in the death camp. We now know enough to be able to say they were accomplices to murder and German courts have accepted that. Well, Martin, as as people who have been listening to this program already know that our studio guest this week is Agnes Grunwald-Spear, the author of Women's Experiences in the Holocaust. Agnes, I believe you wanted to say something. Well, yes. In my second book, which is called Who Betrayed the Jews, I wrote about Groening because the trial was going on whilst I was writing that book. And I wrote about people who had direct complicity and indirect complicity. And obviously, and Groening admitted at his trial that he had indirect complicity. He didn't actually kill anyone. He wasn't a guard, but he was involved in the whole process of what enabled the Holocaust to happen and um, taking away the Jews' possessions, their money, their jewels and so on. That was all part of the process and went into the coffers. Of course, with someone like Groening, he was vehemently anti-Semitic, so you couldn't just say, well, I was only doing as I was told because I was frightened for my family and everything else, as a lot of them did. Groening grew up in a very strongly nationalist family, and for, as, as for many people of that generation who grew up immediately after the First World War, anti-Semitism was very much part of the the atmosphere in which, in which they they lived really even before the before the nazis came to power i mean he's interesting in a sense because i'm sure as many listeners will be aware he did talk openly about what he did in auschwitz from about the 1980s onwards most famously he was interviewed by the filmmaker Lawrence Rees for the BBC documentary series about Auschwitz, which was broadcast in 2005. And he, it, it, it may be slightly ironic, but interesting that he chose to start speaking about what he did at Auschwitz as a means of combating hol Holocaust denial. He was shocked when he encountered this. And so in a way, he was someone who was helping, perhaps indirectly helping to inform us about the reality of Auschwitz. But at the same time, obviously, there is the wider question of his guilt. And, and I, I believe in his trial, he talked about having moral responsibility, but he still denied that he had legal responsibility. And I think it's from, from our point of view, I think it's a welcome development that German law does now see this as something which simply by being in Auschwitz as a part of that SS machinery is something that carries with it legal responsibility. On that point... To make up that machinery, there must have been so many thousands of little cogs in it. How many were actually caught? How many was Oscar growing at a particularly high level, or was he? Was why was he chosen? There must have been sort of people he reported to, and those that reported to him, and ad nauseum really in all directions. Indeed, I mean we are talking about vast numbers of people. I mean when we expand beyond Auschwitz 
to the other extermination camps. And actually, the largest number of perpetrators were, were ordinary German policemen, the people who didn't serve in the camps, but took part in the mass shootings, which were a major, major facet of the of the Shoah. And I mean, some, I, I think it's fair to say that most of the really high profile people who were caught were prosecuted, whether it was at Nuremberg or at subsequent trials. But those people lower down, Gröning wasn't very important. Most of them never faced justice. And I think the simple reason why Gröning was brought to trial and the people he reported to were not is that he outlived them. Naturally, a very small proportion of the the perpetrators are still alive. There have been a small number of cases in the the last few years. There are a few ongoing investigations, but it's a sad fact that most of the people who, in either directly as a murderer or administratively like Groening, who perpetrated the Shoah, most of those people never did face justice. I'm afraid. But there must still be some people who were not guilty of being Nazi or being anti-Semitic. They just did what they had to do, as he did, because that was the way of saving their own lives. Well, that's an interesting point, because that's, that's what many of them said when they were investigated, but actually it's not true. Historians and very dedicated German prosecutors who've looked into this have failed to find a single case of someone being killed for refusing to be a perpetrator. In fact, on the contrary, there are some very well-documented cases of people being given a choice. There's a one of the very best books about perpetrators, which was written about 25 years ago now by the American historian Christopher Browning called Ordinary Men, starts with this unit of basically middle-aged Germans who've been called up into the police because they're too old to, to be in the, the army, going to Poland, becoming mass murderers, and before their first mass murder operation, the commanding officer gets them all together, tells them what they has to, have to do, and says to them, if any of you feel you can't take part in this, step forward now. And some of them did. So in fact, I mean, yeah, there were maybe, maybe a variety of motives why people took part. It wasn't just necessarily always anti-Semitism or belief in Nazism. But nonetheless, these were people who I think historians now universally would agree had some degree of choice, um, which, of course, makes it all the more troubling because we like to think everyone was brainwashed or they were doing this out of fear. But ultimately, these are people who chose to be perpetrators. Well, Martin, thank you so much for telling thank us you. about this. It really has been absolutely fascinating. That's Martin Winstone there from the Holocaust Educational Trust speaking to us on this week's episode of The Jewish Views about the death of convicted guard Oscar Groening. Agnes, just to bring you back into this as we were hearing Martin talking there, it just seems that the overwhelming sense to me anyway with, with all of this is that again, just doesn't matter. They weren't discriminating. The, the Nazis didn't care if you were male or female, did they? It was just everyone was at risk of being persecuted in the most horrendous of ways. No, that's not true, because women were treated differently. As I said, they were left behind to cope with the families and the elderly relatives and so on, and to deal with getting food. They were at risk of being raped. There was problems if they were pregnant. More women were killed at Auschwitz because they were women, because the Germans didn't want women to have children if they were pregnant or if they had small children with them. They were sent to 
the gas chambers. If you look at the figures which are quoted on Twitter every day for on this day so-and-so arrived at Auschwitz every day, you see that very few women were registered into the camp. Most of the women on the transports were sent to be gassed. It seems absolutely unreal. And even now, just talking about it seems to trivialise it, doesn't it? It just feels so unpleasant to know that this is not fictional. Mm. This is actually something that happened, and really quite recently, given considering how recent it was. I mean, the other aspects, for instance, Kitty Moxon-Hart, who was in Auschwitz, told me that the women set up substitute families. So there'd be little groups of two or three women who would make a substitute family and a support group. And that was something that men didn't do. A man might have had a buddy, but he wouldn't have had the same little network. And so one sort of looked to the food, one looked to keeping clean and so on. And that enabled the women to survive much better than the men did. How did your mother survive? Well, she she must have been tough. She was able to breastfeed me even when she didn't have much to eat herself. We were lucky. I mean, the Budapest winters are not very welcoming. There was very little fuel in the ghetto. People were burning furniture and so on. And, um, and also the Hungarian fascists like to take pot shots at the Jews in the ghetto. My cousin who found my mother when the ghetto was liberated said he found her sitting on some steps holding me surrounded by dead bodies. It's absolutely shocking. It really and then is. she had adventures with the Russian soldiers who were roaming round Budapest after they'd liberated it. You know, every single time that we bring up the discussion of the Shoah on this particular program, it never ceases to amaze me how there's always something more to learn about it that yeah. you didn't realise, mm-hmm. that you didn't know, which makes me really worried that because we obviously as Jews have an interest in the Shoah because we obviously would love to ensure that something along those lines never happens again. Please God, it doesn't ever happen again. But yet, if we are always constantly learning about something, what would it take for someone who's not necessarily interested in this subject to learn about it? And the truth is that you probably can't do anything. And therefore, unfortunately, ignorance could breed the unthinkable. Mm. Well, they have to read my books. <laughs> That's a good, good answer. Uh, uh, Raoul Hilberg, who was one of the first historians to study the Holocaust, said just before he died that we've learnt about 20% Mm, of what of went the on. of the, went on, and you know even something like the number of places where people were persecuted and killed. There's a group that have been looking to find the places, and I think they've got to about twenty five thousand now. Mm. And the project is still due to go on for another ten years. Do you believe, as a survivor, do you believe that in fifty, a hundred years' time? people will still remember the Holocaust and will they talk about it as we now talk about the Inquisition? Yes. Dan Mitchman, who's the chief historian at Yad Vashem, told me that I think they get something like 7,000 new books every year on the Holocaust. It's still a popular subject. I wonder if it's a popular subject, though, for the right reasons or the wrong reasons. Did your mother talk about it? No, not very much. My father was a forced labourer and he was rounded up by the Hungarian fascists in 1943, before Hungary was occupied by the Germans in 44. Mm. And he was very, very bitter. And 
I don't have any siblings because he wouldn't have any more children after the war. He said it wasn't a world to bring children into. And he committed suicide when I was 10. He told me a couple of things, but obviously I was only a little girl. Mm. My mother was very enigmatic about things. And as I got older, I would have liked to have asked her, but she got upset and she had bad dreams. And so I weighed up that it was best to leave it. Mm. There is a small section at the end of this book where I write about our story, but she didn't tell me very much. Do you look at yourself as a survivor? Because I'm very aware that this term gets battered about to people who have come through the Shoah in one way or another, but I never really know what it's supposed to mean. Okay, someone has come through the horrors of Nazi Germany, but what does that mean to someone such as yourself who has gone through that? Do you take that as a title that you are a Holocaust survivor? Yes, I I say I'm a Holocaust survivor because I might only have been six months old when we were liberated, but I might not have survived in that period. I I was very much at risk as a very small baby. and. You're a survivor with a different story to some of the other survivors. That's all it is. I'm a survivor with no memories because what I write and what I say about our story is what my mother told me. But. That doesn't negate it. And in fact, when Steven Spielberg was doing his Shoah Foundation, I think I was the only person they interviewed who wasn't speaking from direct memory. Mm. But I said to them, if you don't interview me, I can speak for my parents. If you don't let me do the interview, then their voices will be lost. Your parents were the greatest gifts who gave you the gift of life. I mean, in in more ways than one. Yes. And going forward, when with a lot of survivors who are now passing away, unfortunately, it's good to have the children talk about their parents' experiences or indeed their own experiences living with the parent who was a survivor. Well, my sons identify, say, I'm the child of a Holocaust survivor. How would you say that your experience or your family's experience of the Shah has impacted on your everyday life? Does it still continue to haunt you, the thought that your family went through what they went through? Does it, say, make you suddenly realise how lucky you are to be here? How does it affect you daily, would you say? Well, I think in all those ways, certainly knowing that somebody tried to kill me before I was even old enough to be aware of life, makes me very pleased that I am here Mm. and I do endeavour to make the most out of my life. It certainly encouraged me to write my books, even though I came to writing in old age, really, because I feel, you know, I can write for the people who did not survive to write. And it's one of the reasons why I speak out and go and give talks and so on, because I think people need to know And I recently spoke at Sheffield University to about 400 people. And and I had some amazing emails from the students. They were just incredibly moved and it was was very gratifying. Did you, Agnes, focus on your, focus on the women as a result of, because your mother was a very strong figure in your life, or did you see more the the brutality of what Nazis were doing to, to, to women? as something that you felt they needed to have a voice particularly? I think the women's story needs to be told. And I'd written about rescuers, and then I'd written about the other side, the people who betrayed Jews. And so this seemed a good topic to turn to. And I found the most amazing women. I mean, the substance of the book, written it in 
little sections. So there's two or three women, and there's musicians, there's doctors, there's mothers, there's partisans. There's was it hard to write? I mean, were there any particular parts that you just thought, I'm, I've got to go and go for a walk around the block, I can't do this? But the hardest thing I've ever written was the chapter in my second book, Who Betrayed the Jews, about the children, what happened to the children generally and particularly in the camps. That was the bit I found the hardest. I suppose because I've lived with the Holocaust all my life, I have a certain resilience and and also, you know, I live on my own, so it's quite difficult. So I sit there all day typing and reading. But then, you know, when it gets to when I finish, I turn it, the laptop off and I go and make my supper and I sit and watch Coronation Street. <laughs> and um, it doesn't keep me awake at night. I wouldn't be able to do it, actually. If it seeped into it, you have to be able yes, to keep your writing separate. Yeah, I have separate. to be able to kind of compartmentalise it. But I just feel... It's important. I really wanted to be an architect, actually, because I think leaving buildings behind you must be wonderful. But I think writing books and knowing that long after I'd gone, it'll still my books will still be sitting in your, the British your book, Library. Your books will probably still be there, even though some of the buildings may not. Of course. <laughs> There's no risk of your book getting demolished. After That's that. right. Well, I hope not. But in all seriousness, let's talk a bit about the structure then of the book. Because obviously you have to pracy these things. You have to sort of build up to what you're actually mm. getting to, the point you're making. How is the actual structure of the book formed then? Well, the section, I suppose the section on mothers, well, is the longest. I think there's actually about six women in it, whereas most of them have two or three women. Originally, I was going to write about women doing ordinary things in the war and women doing exceptional things. But that didn't really work out when I read... One of the parachutists wrote to her, I can't remember if it was a friend or family, and said that all she wanted to do really was have get married and have babies. I realised that you couldn't really separate it. And I just wanted to show the breadth of women's experiences. And I also wanted to show that when people say they went like lambs to the slaughter, that it really wasn't true. There was resistance, mm. but uh, they were in a very difficult position. It was very difficult to get arms. It was very difficult to get money to buy arms. Mm. There's something in there about the women who took, for, you know, who were sorting the jewels and so on at, at Auschwitz, and they made up little bundles and dropped it in the soup container so that the men at the other end could take it out and then they used it to buy the gunpowder and or whatever it was they used when that crematorium was blown up and so on. And I'd really wanted to demonstrate that people did what they could to resist and to try and fight back, but obviously they didn't have the tools. But what comes up most of what you've been saying um, about the book is that there was a very wonderful woman who lived in this through all of this, and that was your mother. Was she able to cope with it after it was all over? I don't know. My mother was a difficult woman. I've got no means of knowing whether she would have been a difficult woman anyhow. I don't understand how any of these people managed to create a normal life after going through what they went through and the feeling of betrayal and particularly in a way the petty things in the second book where people left their valuables with trusted neighbours or friends and then 
when they had the misfortune of coming back and asking for them, they denied that they'd got them. And another man saw a neighbor wearing the suit that his mother wore to shawl, and she said that she'd sold everything to buy food and so on. I don't know how you get over that. I personally always like to hear the same question answered by any Holocaust survivor. What do you say to those who deny it or say that it wasn't as bad as people make out? I say go to Yad Vashem. Yeah. Or, or read in, my books. I was going to say, or indeed read your <laughs> yeah, book. The, the evidence is there, isn't it? Well, it certainly is, and it certainly is in the form of women's experiences in the Holocaust, in their own words. So I've actually used their letters and their diaries and their memoirs, so they actually speak to us across the generations, and I think that's terribly important because they so wanted their stories to be known. That makes it even more personal, doesn't it? Well, yes. And powerful, yeah. Mm. really is amazing. Well, hopefully people will read the book and they will find out in their own words, exactly what the women you talk of went through. But Agnes Grammel-Tophir, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Speaking to thank us. you. Goodness me, I tell you, I don't know about you lot, but I'm just, I'm, I feel as if I'm now, I know this sounds really strange, but I feel <coughs> as if I know less than when I started this program because it suddenly opened up my mind to recognise that there is so much more that meets the eye yes. to the shower. Yeah. And in particular as well, I was particularly fascinated where, what was it, I think it was a quote about so there's only 20% of the Holocaust known. That's Raoul Hilberg. So there you go, so only 20%. Such a small number, isn't it? It just seems unbelievable. But look, we earlier on in this program, we did start off by talking about the death of Oscar Groening, who was known as sort of the, the bookkeeper of Auschwitz, who never actually got to serve his sentence. And let's read out some of the Facebook comments that we've got about that. Anthony has said when we asked on Facebook how you react to the death of him, Anthony has said good riddance to bad rubbish. Jeffrey has put like so many others, he got off scot-free. Linda says glad he's gone. The world is now a little less polluted. And there's another comment here from Bernie that says, I was so annoyed he was not tracked down years ago to serve a long, long sentence. One of the many that got away under the pretext they didn't know what was going on in spite of the gas chambers going on from morning till night. Now he goes straight to, well, a worse place, shall we say. Good riddance, but escape justice. Years ago, saw his smirking face on a documentary, which we actually brought up earlier on as well. Not one bit apologetic for his crimes. I just think that there is, it's clear from the reaction we've got, I can actually say there's been no one who has said that he was never sort of given a chance to remorse or anything like they'll show remorse, nothing like that. Actually, every single one of the many comments we've got all express how pleased they are that the world is now without mm. him. So it is, it really is quite an extraordinary week. Although he didn't actually serve his prison term, he was tried. Mm. And it's important that people know that your deeds will catch up with you. And he did, wasn't able to live his last years by the fireside in his slippers in comfort. He had that hanging over his head. Thinking and I he think got it's, away with it. Yes. I think it's terribly important that other people who commit mm. terrible deeds, they will have that thought at the back that perhaps one day they'll catch up with them. Well, one can only assume that somebody of that nature doesn't necessarily have a conscience in the first place. But if they do, it's certainly mm. something of, I hope, comfort to know 
that at least those individuals will have to, as you say, live with yeah. what they've done for however long they're on this earth for. Anyway, we are nearly out of time for this week's program. But just before we do head off, I think there is time for our rabbinic thought for the week. And this time it comes from Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg from New North London Resorty Synagogue. The new moon of Nissan brings an intensification of the preparation for Pesach, cleaning, worrying, cooking, inviting towards the excitement of the Seder night. But there is another custom for the month of Nissan, which as a gardener I particularly love. It is to find a fruit tree and say a blessing over its flowers, its young blossom. The bracha goes like this, Blessed be God, sovereign of the universe, who makes nothing lacking in the world, who's created beautiful creatures and beautiful trees for the benefit of human beings and their enjoyment. I've always loved to go out with Nikki, with my wife, with the family and say this blessing. At this point in history, the world feels depressing. One worries about Russia, the politics of Europe, the changes in Poland's attitude to the Holocaust for Jews in particular, the presidency of Donald Trump and where that will lead the United States, not to mention North Korea. There are many reasons to be depressed and I find myself staring, sometimes in despair, at the morning paper, yet reading it with a feeling that I have to know what's happening in the world. That shouldn't make one forget that the world is also beautiful. There are wonderful trees. There are birds and animals. There are good and kind people, what the bracha describes as briot tovot ilanot tovim, good creatures and good and beautiful trees. And in some ways, I find that they resource me to cope with the difficulties of life. If I remember what's good, it makes me want to do what is good, to support the existence and the lives of beautiful gardens, wild landscapes, good and kind-hearted and compassionate communities of people, because it is there that we will find the resources to struggle against the potential evils of history and time. And the month of Nisan reminds us that our journey should always be towards hope, from slavery towards freedom, from hopelessness towards a renewed vision of what we and the world and the Jewish people can and should be. Well, there we go. Thank you very much indeed to Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg from New North London Mazorti Synagogue with our thought for the week. And that is all the Jewish views we have time for. Thank you very much to our guests, to Martin Winstone from the Holocaust Educational Trust and to Agnes Grumbled Spear talking about her book, Women's Experiences in the Holocaust in Their Own Words. But if you want to listen to this or indeed any other episode of The Jewish Views, please make sure you visit our website, jewishviews.co.uk, where you'll also be able to listen to all previous episodes as well. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News. But from me, Phil Dave, Tony Honickberg, Clive Roslin and Kate Fulton, we do hope you will join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Bye.